0: Hi guys, welcome to the church split. My name is Will, we have Brian with us as always. What's up, Heretics? And you guys know what we do here, we help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge the status quo, which always needs challenging. We're very big in that. Uh, Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel, leave us five star reviews, and uh, especially on Apple. But um, if you want to leave us a one star review, we always request that you roast us good. So if you hate us, make it worth it because I wanna be entertained at least if I'm gonna get a one-star review, so. Mock Will specifically. No, mock Brian. I get enough <laughs> I get enough attacks, okay? Also, don't forget to check out our website, thechurchsplit.com, and also Black Sheep Theology, also known as BS Theology. We have fun pillows here. Um, our little side project that we do with a group of people. And uh, yeah, follow us on socials and all that stuff, you know, internet things. Is there anything you'll need to add to that? Nope, you got it all covered. Okay, cool.
1: Subscribe, don't subscribe. We don't care, have fun. Yeah,
0: that's true. <laughs> um, if you unsubscribe though, you don't need to announce it. It's again, it's a YouTube channel, not an airport. You don't need to announce your departure, so. Um, anyhow, with that being said, uh, we are definitely challenging status quo today, and this is fun because we have a good friend of mine. Uh, we have Nick Quint on with New Testament Theologist, a friend of the channel. You, many of you guys who have caught our live streams or our, um, premieres might notice him from the chat. Uh, he likes to harass us and all that good stuff. And, uh, Nick is, um... He is known primarily in our theological circles as a New Testament theologian and also a promoter of the egalitarian position within the church between men and women anything you want to add to that brian no i'm
1: excited to talk to nick we've we've been talking about this for almost a year i think yes. having him on so yeah
2: sounds about it yeah about a year procrastinating
0: yeah. and here he is <laughs> makes you feel any better there's a lot of people that it's the same way They're like we want to come on we're like, great and then we just don't do it so <laughs> 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 um but this is one of those areas actually where um brian and i we're soft complementarians um we're not like hardcore complementarians nor are we like extreme headship crazy people um and then there is Nick, who's egal. So this is actually one of those areas where we kind of disagree, but we're ho- hoping today to get some deeper understanding in this topic, um, and perhaps we can have our minds changed, or in Brian's case, rechanged.
1: Yeah, yeah. I came from the egal side. My uh, old head pastor um, at my original church was a woman, and when I met my wife, she changed my mind on this, um, actually. So I'm willing to be changed, but I'm- have my mind changed back.
0: But- yeah, and to be clear, we actually hold our position here with open hands. Like we're not. We're, we're not like one of those people that are like, oh, my gosh, if you disagree with us in this area, you're a church that's going to hell. Um, we're just like, oh, this is kind of where we stand. But we're again, we're going to have a mature conversation. So with that being said, Nick, welcome to the church split, man. How you doing?
2: I'm doing all right. Thanks for taking a year to finally get back to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and this is what i was looking forward to. Uh, you're very welcome. Um, you should uh, talk to our secretary. Um <laughs> We
2: don't have one. Sure, I'll I'll, I'll email you later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's too quick. I don't like it. All right, so uh, Nick, um, for people who don't know who you are or aren't familiar with your ministry and your studies and basically the Nick Quint, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background?
2: Yeah, I I grew up in Southern California. Uh, Dad was involved in ministry, uh, was homeschooled. Uh, people don't know that I was homeschooled my entire life. Uh, you seem way too cool to be homeschooled. <laughs> that is not true. That is so not true. If you knew me better, you wouldn't say that. Okay, I mean I was
0: homeschooled too, but that's why I'm a loser.
2: I could say it with you. You, we, you and I have that overcompensating kind of thing that we gotta go. It's like no, we're real cool. We gotta really try. Oh uh, my gosh. But went to Biola, studied to be a a screenwriter for for film and all of that. Um, met my wife there. Uh, then decided that, uh, New Testament studies was, uh, a more surefire way to not make any money in my life and went to Fuller Seminary, got a master's in New Testament, uh, got yanked into church ministry for about four years after that, uh, currently no longer in, in church, well, formal church ministry. I preach on the side when requested and asked, but, uh, yeah, slowly, very, very slowly working on a PhD in New Testament at Ridley college under, uh, Mike Burton. So that's, that's, I mean, I podcast, I do other stuff, I write, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. I'm married with a little one, Nolan, who's a little over two right now.
0: Dude, I'm not going to lie. Your kid's cute.
2: He is way <laughs> too cute. It's not yeah. fair.
0: It, no, it really isn't. Like, there's there's very few people that I'm like, oh, their kid's really cute. Cause, you know, certain kids come out and they're a little funny looking. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not allowed to say that, but that is true. It is true. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, Nick's kid has always been cute. Like, mm-hmm. since the moment I remember you, uh, I actually remember when he was. When I was first kind of introduced to you it was soon after he was born, and you were on, I think, with Bridget or somebody, and you were just like holding your son while you're just like on this interview. I'm like, dude, this That's guy awesome. is the this guy's like the ultimate dad. He's like, I like theology, I like mm-hmm. Jesus, and uh, I'm holding my kid while in an interview.
2: Well, he was he was hungry, and I fed him. He didn't want to be let go, so I was like, well, I guess you're coming to talk uh, talk with Bridget and me. So
0: fair <laughs> enough. So, uh, yeah, anyway, so you were raised in a Christian home. Um, mm-hmm. And what, what what was it that kind of got you into being like, no, ministry's the thing?
2: Um, getting a job offer. <laughs> I mean, one of those, I, I went to seminary because I didn't want to be a pastor. I had no, in- I didn't take a single preaching class, pastor, like none of that. The closest thing I got to a ministry class were the required spiritual formation classes. Um, I, w- I was the language guy. I was the take Greek text guy. I was, was all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then the church, uh, church reached out and we got connected and they were looking for someone who was young and could do uh, social media and teaching and all that sort of stuff. And, and it was, uh, I was like, well, okay. I went into that, then fell in love with it. Um, I, I, my biggest thing that I say to people is if, if, uh, you can't take what you're learning in seminary and preach it in your local church, then your seminary is doing it wrong. Um, and so for me, I, I view theological education as just as, uh, as, as a, for, as an aspect of, uh, spiritual formation and discipleship. And when done rightly, and I'm not talking about like the, theolo- like, you know, having the right theology, but done in the right spirit of things, uh, that leads to right worship of God and holiness and all that sort of stuff. So, um, didn't want to be a pastor, fell into it and loved it. Um, church and I parted ways maybe 10 months ago, um, And all that sort of stuff and but i I love the local church and i'm ordained in the american baptist churches usa which is about as diverse a denomination as you can have and still call it a denomination um (laughs) but yeah uh that's yeah i i I didn't want to be in ministry at least uh church ministry and fell into it and fell in love with it and now it's what i'm looking to do and all that sort of stuff so
0: so so you're currently uh wanting to pastor full-time is that my understanding
2: That'd be nice. Um, as, uh, I, I mean, I do pulpit supply when asked. Um, mm-hmm. Preach twice at a, one of our, American, our African-American churches up uh, in North Los Angeles area. Preached at other churches throughout the area, just upon request. So um, that'd be nice. Um, that's certainly where I feel called, at least for the time being. Um, the hope would be, I mean, I think most people would prefer this, is um, teach Sunday school on Sunday morning and teach theology or New Testament Monday through Friday. And hopefully have a saturday off but that never works in ministry but that's that's a joke
0: (laughs) yeah uh no i have one of the things i wanted to touch on before we got into our main discussion was i actually thought you put that very well because uh brian and i regularly teach the theological class on sunday mornings and one of the things I've said before is that knowledge changes lives. So a lot mm-hmm. of people seem to think that like theology is studying theology is like for stuffy theologians in their ivory towers as they pour over pages of old manuscripts and only the smartest people or the most boring people among us would be interested. And uh, I just don't think that's true. And also when you are equipped with knowledge, knowledge is part of your spiritual formation. So knowledge can mm-hmm. help change your life. Um, and I just it's one of the things uh, theology changed my life I know theology has impacted yours oh, yeah. and um, mm-hmm. I just think it's really good that you're a person who's passionate about that uh, because we need more of that I think in churches as opposed to just very shallow sermons that we I, I tend to hear often behind pulpits
2: well it's like you see you, you talk about I mean I taught I, I I'll never do this again it was very stupid I translated the book of Revelation and then decided to do a 10 10- go through the book of revelation in 10 weeks over the summer at church. Um, never doing that again, because that means you've got about two to three chapters to do each time. And wow. Yeah. Um, people loved it. I hated it. Not because it was a bad experience, but because at the end of it, I'm like, I just, I, I couldn't do that again. Um, but the stuff you learn, whether it's textual issues, whether it's, um, grammatical issues, whether it's background issues, whether it's just, uh, theological claims that the text makes, uh, At the end of it, people are going like, well, this was not the left behind nonsense that I was fed as a kid. This actually has relevance then and now um, and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, I read I I recall reading them. I think it was uh, Enochian literature. You know, here's here's what Enoch has to say. Here's what some other Jewish authors say. Here's how they thought. And here's where, you know, John the seer is kind of in line with them. And here's where he kind of tweaks them. And here's where he just blows right past them into the middle of an LSD trip. You know, he just does not care. (laughs) And so, uh, I mean, one thing I told him was if John, this is a technical thing, but I'm like, if John wrote this, um, and I I, I don't think John, the author of the gospel of John, wrote the book of Revelation. Um, I think there's just grammatically, it's just stylistically way too different. It reads really different in Greek, like Agreed. really different. Um, but John, it's like if John's written in the 60s, then you don't have the height of persecution because you don't have a centralized church. But if it's written in the 90s, you have very clearly centralized power and persecution going on. So it's like, you know, it, it, that changes how you read the text. If they're a beleaguered minority being shoved around, that's one thing. If they're actually being systematically like hunted and shoved and displaced, then that changes the tune of what John is saying. So just, you know, things like that, you just bring up to people and hopefully that leads when they, when they worship, they're thinking about just what the early church went through. And um, while not analogous perfectly, you can find parallels of that today, but you usually have to go to, to China to see that, um, but it, it at least it at least shook a lot of them and myself included out of uh, the doldrums of having air conditioning and internet when John this year clearly had neither. So it's just, a, it's an invitation to a whole new world.
0: Now that's actually, uh, now you got me distracted. I'm like, ooh, Revelation guy. Uh, so really just quickly, because we should have you sure. back on to talk eschatology sometime. That would be a fascinating conversation. Um, what is your eschatological position?
2: Uh, you mean on the millennium? What was that? On the millennium?
0: Uh, just in general, like, uh, are you like Amill? Are you preterist? Are you? Uh... Oh,
2: I, I think that conversation is largely irrelevant to what the new t- what Revelation is actually trying to do. Oh, um, I mean, if you wanted to pin me down and you know at gunpoint, you know, give me a category, I'd say probably a combination of mill and partial preterist. But I don't, I, I don't, I don't think Revelation fits into any of those categories, and I get really queasy when we start. Pulling a Thomas Jefferson and, and cutting stuff apart and trying to make it fit. Um, I, I think apocalyptic literature resists all of those easy categorizations. So it's one of those I, I, I get to Revelation 20 and I'm just kind of like, I don't, I, I'm baffled. It's not that I can't understand where people are coming from because I, I, I do pride myself being able to be very empathetic, you know, when it comes to interpretive options and stuff. I just kind of sat there, I'm like, I don't understand how anyone could read it this way. And I, I come from that tradition, you know, the left behind stuff all those debates and stuff, I was like, this is so not what a first century Jew (laughs) would care about. Even if it, even if it's, you know, um, plausible, I mean, I mean, all things are possible, I suppose, but just one of those, I'm like, the idea of a first century Jew reading it with those sort of categories, I think just, I think John the seer just doesn't fit into that. And so that's, it's not that it's a bad question. I think it's a very good question. People are are right to think about it. I just go, you ask John that John's going to look at you like you got a lobster growing out of your forehead.
1: So what you're saying is I have to remove my Google alert for Nikolai Carpathia. That's not something that No, I'd
2: say, say keep that. I'd say okay. keep that. He he okay. scares me. <laughs>
0: Um, so actually I would, I'd actually be completely inclined to agree with literally everything you just said, including if someone had a gun to my head, that would be probably my position as well. So that's, just funny. Yeah. Uh, we definitely need to have you on to talk about that. that would be a fun. I, now try. I'm actually more interested in that conversation. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie, but lo and behold, we will truck on because I actually think it's good because we have, um, discussed like complimentary views. Um, uh, on with relationship between men and women in the church. Uh, We've discussed that on our own channel, our positions and our thoughts on it uh, briefly. And um, so I just think it'd be really cool to show the fact that hey, look, there are other Orthodox Christians that are conservative and uh, theologically conservative, who by the way, aren't uh, crazy progressive or uh, at all that stuff, because there's this weird idea that as soon as you're EGAL, you must be some crazy progressive. Nick Quint, you're my favorite third wave feminist
2: i'm a first-wife feminist i'm old school women have the right to vote own property do whatever they want they have the same rights as men you don't get more than that and men don't get more than that either
0: well see now i disagree i'm just kidding i'm just kidding no now we really agree i'm just kidding before someone's like cancel will he sucks um give it time uh, Nick, <laughs> give it time. It probably will happen. All right. So Nick, can you tell us a little bit about the egal position? Can you give us like kind of an overview of the of the basic views, and we can go ahead and start diving in?
2: Sure. So if you if you were to go with views on a spectrum, um, so you've got let's let's just use the words as they are defined now, um, it, just in lieu of of kind of how words change you know meaning shifts and stuff like that so on the one hand let's say you've got feminism which today taken as what your average person thinks blue hair um screaming about gender ideology critical race theory all that sort of stuff and men and women are um identical in every way identical and all that sort of stuff then on the other hand you know women shouldn't vote women shouldn't own property she shouldn't have a bank account she should be barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen so you kind of okay those are patriarchy matriarchy that's kind of the insanity that I think most Christians are kind of uh, uncomfortable with. I mean, you got folks that make a living off being like that, obviously, and I'm being very cynical when I say that, um, but you're gonna find the majority of Christians aren't, aren't comfortable with those. And so in the middle, you've got um, uh, what is called you know, complementarianism, um, then you have egalitarianism. And egalitarianism makes the same claim as complementarianism in my understanding, Um, equal in dignity and value, but the the distinctions that an egalitarian sees aren't based on um, hierarchy or gender-based hierarchy. They are based on biological distinctives and gifts and calling. Um, And so an egalitarian would affirm the complementarity of male and female, between male and female, but wouldn't see hierarchy uh, as the kind of distinctive defining feature of that relationship. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm leaving out the you know the marriage relationship for now because that's a whole other discussion and we can have that discussion but just for the sake of time and focus um i'm just focusing on on ministry and leadership in that kind of area because you do have egalitarians that do affirm uh or you have scholars like the late grant osborne who taught new testament at trinity evangelical divinity school for gosh years he, he recently passed away he was my wife's Greek teacher when she was at ted's doing her mdiv um, he was egalitarian in the church and compl- soft complementarian in the home. And you'll find a lot of folks are kind of, like the evangelical uh, free church, for example, is. That's a that's a mainstream view there. Um, and so the egalitarian just makes the claim that um, we are different in our biological gifts, but also our vocational gifts. And um, uh, the, and the only difference, I think, between both sides is um, whether or not there is a gender based hierarchy that that is included in our differences, and so um, one of the key traits that um, my, one of my old professors said it's complementarity without hierarchy is one of, is the key distinctive, and that hierarchy can be expressed in many different ways: um, servant leadership, um, or or more uh, aggressive forms like male headship, the male headship movement, and stuff like that. So you, there's even variants within within complementarianism there. Um, so that's in in a very thirty thousand foot view um, is kind of uh, what I see are some of the key differences, but also what both views um, affirm. And dis- I think where the nub of the issue is.
0: Right. No, I actually agree with that. That's kind of the, the issue as I understand it as well. We um, Actually, a good friend of ours on the channel, Jordan Ferrier, his wife is a pastor um, and he's uh EGAL in the church, uh soft comp at home. Uh, so it's funny that you mentioned that view because I was wondering if that was going to be a view that you would mention, and you, you did. so.
2: Well, that's actually, I think, and I could be wrong on this. I'm not, um, I'm not in this denomination, but the assemblies of God, I think technically, uh, I don't know if it's a a formal definition as much as it may be a cultural one, which I'm not saying cultural reasons are bad or anything, but um, they do affirm women in ministry, um, but there is a sort of male uh, headship in the home um, and that sort of stuff. So women can be licensed, ordained, whatever they want to call it. Um, uh, in the local church alongside men, but um, there is a sort of male authority or male um, or male centered hierarchy that they, or that's, I think the language one of them even use in the home. So denominations have that kind of idea as well. Um, so, but yeah, that is a, another, an alternative. Um, I, I wouldn't call it a third way, um, but I would say it's a, it's a nuanced position probably within the egalitarian movement. Um, but even then, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I get the logic of that. That's kind of where I was for a few, for about a year. Um, so I, I've never seen someone be the reverse. Although in practice, most of my complementarian friends aren't complementarian in their marriage, um, but they are complementarian in the church. Meaning they don't act like a complementarian marriage. It's I'm like that marriage looks identical to mine. And that was one of the things I told my parents, who are complementarian, was. Your marriage is almost identical to mine and Allison's, and they, my wife actually, or my my wife, my mother was just like shocked. I was like, oh, maybe we are, maybe we are this, and it was a really good conversation and stuff. So, um, but yeah, just to just a affirm what your your point was and take us down a, a stupid little rabbit trail. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I was curious too. Is is that you kind of hinted at it? Is this a position that you've you've come to a conclusion on, or you and you change your mind, or is this something you've held for most of your Christian life?
2: Oh I was I was raised complementarian. Um my parents I would say were s- between soft I mean just kind of a standard complementarian, not hard, not soft, just kind of complementarian, kind of your standard stuff. Um the church culture I was in was very complementarian. Um I never saw a woman do much of anything except sing background vocals up, you know, up on the pulpit and stuff like that. Um didn't take the offering, didn't do anything like that. And this was not this wasn't a liturgical church. They for some reason it was fine for them to break the bread which I'm like in a liturgical setting is very much a no-no, but you know, we're taking offerings and tithes and stuff, you know. And so it was—it was a Calvary Chapel movement, um, essentially, is what it was, um, or the denomination. It's—we're it, not a denomination. Yeah, you and every non-denominational church and every want-to-be Baptist church um, in the world. Um, but yeah, it, that was a. um Yeah, I was definitely raised that. Didn't question it. Um, didn't do as much research on it as I should have. But you know, when you're born into it, that's kind of just—that's what you have. Got to undergrad, Uh, my wife, my girlfriend, who then became my wife, said, I don't want to be a pastor, but um, I feel called to uh, teach and and all that sort of stuff. And uh, she had gone through her own process, um, raised in the American Baptist churches, which are officially egalitarian uh, in terms of ministry. Um, They don't make a statement about marriage. Um, And she was complementarian for a while, and her dad convinced her to change her mind. You know, that was a conversation, you know, and she, she grew up debate like the Biola kid, debate, 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 hash it out, read everything, fight it out. And so she basically said, you're going to get blowback if you and I date from your friends. So you need to go think about whether or not we need to even, we can continue this relationship or if you change your mind. And it's not like she put, you know, didn't put it like, you know, you have to change your mind or I won't date you, but, you know, sack up and uh, go do some reading. And so I did. Uh, read, uh, I, I took Uh, Ron Pierce's theology of gender class at Biola, who um, is still a close friend of ours. Uh, And I would say at the end of that class, I was, I would, I would say egalitarian, but had lots of questions. I bought it. I accepted the kind of, here's the rubric of scripture. There's pieces here that don't quite gel with me, but I'm willing to kind of accept the big picture and fiddle with these for, for a while. Um. So, yeah, and I became an egalitarian probably about a year later and still had questions. I still have questions. There's a few passages where I'm like, "Oof," my interpretation on those passages shifted substantially. Um, so, yeah, but I would say I'm egalitarian in the church, egalitarian in the home and all that sort of stuff. But that was a, a not to get too deep in it, but that was a very painful process, both uh, family and friends, as I'm sure you all can imagine and all that sort of stuff. So cha- I, I don't change my mind lightly, but when I do, I'm I expect uh, reasonable conversation i got very little of that when i changed my mind you would have thought i came out as a unitarian or something like that
0: (laughs) Uh, trust me as a man who has shifted his view on the atonement uh pretty drastically within the last three years believe me i get it People are like Mm -hmm. he's a heretic burn him at the stake and i'm like bro i'm silly confirmed that okay um so uh, believe me i get it so um now can, can you tell us a little bit about like what were some of the uh, what's the overall big picture? Because you mentioned that, like you understand the big picture of it. And now you just had to fiddle with some of these other ones. What was that big picture that convinced you like, okay, this seems true?
2: My complementarian friends, and I, I i don't have them on record. I wish I did. But they essentially admitted to me, Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't teach my view. Paul's reading of Genesis 1 and 2 and 1 Timothy does. And so I'm reading these texts through the lens of what we think Paul is saying. And they just flat out said that. And I was like, well, hold on. Uh, If Paul, if you're conceding that Genesis doesn't teach your view, then either Paul doesn't know how to read or you're misinterpreting Paul or you're misinterpreting Genesis either way. But the fact that they were willing to concede Genesis on its own doesn't teach this. But Paul's interpretation, or at least they, they should say. Uh, to be more charitable to them. There was a sense of I, I think the egalitarians have the better argument if Genesis one and two were in isolation of, of everything else. It was kind of the argument. And I was like, I okay, I'll take that. Then they're like, but Paul's interpretation guides my reading, or what I think what I think Paul says in one Timothy guides my reading of Genesis one and two. And I was sitting there going like we wouldn't accept like but but I get I I mean I say that not to belittle them, because I, I think the point they made is actually hermeneutically quite interesting. But it was to say that I think most complementarians, uh, at least Old Testament scholars, and virtually all egalit, and let, I'm eschewing the feminists who are like, oh yeah, Moses is patriarchal and sexist and all this sort of stuff. We, we don't care. You know, it's like, you know, just get rid of all this. It's like the people committed to the authority of the Bible all virtually go, okay, Genesis 1 through 3 gives us kind of a compressed narrative. You know, you bring in some Walton, you have you know, all this sort of stuff here, you bring in some Mike Kaiser, you get all that stuff there. And there's a very strong sense, I think, that Genesis one teaches, you might call shared dominion, shared representations, shared uh, value, and even function in the garden. Um, you have uh, classification, you know, God. you know, separating creation, separating the elements, so to speak, in the act of creation and stuff like that. And the only issue, I, the only caveat is when you get to Genesis three, you have, of course, the fall and the, the issue comes down to it, is the fall a good thing, or is the fall a bad thing? Well, we all agree, whatever you think, that the fall is bad. We were not meant to live like this. And so the big picture is that Christ comes in to undo what the fall did. And that's, of course, atonement theories are linked to that, the recapitulation theory from Irenaeus. You have all those sorts of big themes, you know, Christ comes, and you have the advent of the spirit, you have Pentecost, and you have what you might call an apocalyptic holy war, uh, in the sense of the incarnation is God's that's basically a Christological D-Day. Um, and that's why you can have phrases or language of, you know, born under law, born from woman at the right time, Christ came into the world and, you know, uh, Christ was sent into the world to save sinners of which I'm the foremost and so on and so forth. So you have kind of this egalitarians tie, the fall and incarnation as kind of the two big, and I use this term uh, very specifically, narratival points in the Bible, right? Those kind of peak points in the, in the arc of scripture that give us a sort of lens by which we view everything else. We have uh, fall and then you have incarnation and all the rest, as Stanley Harbaugh said, is BS. Well, he didn't say it like that, but it was the joke was, Jesus is Lord, all else is BS. But I'm modifying that. You have fall and you have incarnation, everything else is BS. Everything has to fall under that. And so uh, egalitarians generally take that kind of biblical theological rubric as kind of the, I wouldn't say the lens, but kind of at least the the way of conceptualizing texts and themes and so on and so forth. So uh, what uh, what Christ does in the incarnation is overcome sin, death, all the other stuff we associate with the fall, and has constituted a new humanity and a new kingdom in which uh, all men and women together share in the vocation of priesthood and holy representation before a very holy and very good God. And so that just massive picture, lots of pieces to unpack, but that's kind of the rubric of how egalitarians generally approach kind of the big picture.
0: So, so, and just a quick do a quick summary. So, basically, men and women created with equal stewardship, um, no hierarchy in the garden, essentially. And then after the fall, you say that that's the, again, that's where we're not supposed to, um, things happen that weren't supposed to be, right? That's not the fall's bad,
2: right? I mean, if, unless you have a certain reformed view that the fall is actually a part of God's creation and you and I'm not well but I'm saying there are that's kind of what you would have to in some sense kind of bite the bullet on you know that in order for this to kind of continue on you have to bite the bullet on the fall being at least planned or worst caused you know and that's not to throw my reformed brothers and sisters under the bus because most of them I know are, are egalitarian and they have a very beautiful theology of how that all works within their kind of reformed system Um, Which I think is very fascinating, but I'm I'm a Wesleyan, so I don't share those. I'm always intrigued to see how they get to where they go. And they have some very interesting arguments. But all that to say,
0: most reformed people I know are comp. That's
2: funny. Um. (laughs) I mean, many of them are. Uh, Many of my friends are. I'd say the vast majority of, I mean, okay, uh, you bring in the PCOSA and the PCA and all all reform denominations, I'd say you probably have about a 50-50 split.
0: I mean, Brian was raised before him. His his uh, pastor was a woman, so hey, I, I'm not doubting you for a minute. Yep. Um. So then they're very egal. So then, when you go forward, um. So then the idea is, so then the fall happened, which is bad, and then Christ restored everyone into equality of priesthood and everything. Right. That's that's the that's the general quick scope.
2: Yeah. Christ is recapitulating what Eden was, and that we are supposed to be.
0: Okay. Uh. Cool. So then. I guess uh, I'll start kind of now that we kind of got that. I think the only way we can really continue this conversation is if we get to the specifics, right? Like, let's talk about a little bit of some of the text. I think that's fair. Sure. Um, So, real quick, I just do want to zip back to Genesis real fast. Um, Sure. So, what what would your thoughts be? Uh, because uh all rabbi readings i've read i've read uh dealing with that it still sees a hierarchy in that like the whole idea of her coming out of the man uh, uh like the rib coming out of the man is a showing of being under his hierarchy symbolically there uh what are your thoughts on that kind of interpretation of rabbinic literature um and historically that's what the jews have taught which is why rabbis are still only men um and then some i know some of the early church fathers have there's some mixture it seems like uh some of them have spoken almost very negatively toward women and then some mm-hmm. of them seem to speak pretty positively so a little bit of what's your view on how that interpretation works in genesis and then also what are your thoughts on some of the historical claims made by people regarding that
2: yeah so the the rabbinic literature is is i would say largely negative but you also have the issue of it being late uh or much later uh and so you have uh you have what you might call, I don't like the, you have Greco-Roman issues with that as well. Plutarch's view of women, for example, being incredibly misogynistic, like, <laughs> Plutarch, like,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whoa.
2: Uh, but then you, but then you go to, it, it's like Plutarch is not that much different from Tertullian, which tells us, okay, some folks have, it's in the water at that point, you might say, or it always has been in the water. Um, when it comes to rabbinic readings of that, uh, or at least of Genesis, uh, the ones I've read and I haven't studied rabbinics as much as I would like. I studied, um, I I just looked at what Moses, well, let's just say Moses, uh, what Moses said in Genesis, um, Paul's interpretation, Jesus interpretation. Um, and I think John Walton had this really interesting point and it's, it's actually a point I heard from predated by Rob Gagnon, who's at uh, HBU and, wrote probably the definitive conservative or traditionalist book uh defending the traditional understanding of same-sex marriage and same-sex activity it's 500 page book it's extensive and he argued and I think I think this is right because then I went and verified it was it's not rib it's side uh he is, she is not taken it's not literally a rib she is taken from his side and that word uh is often used to describe the sides of uh sacred things so God's uh, the Solomonic the side of the Solomonic Temple, the sides of God's holy mountain. And John Walton has made that point uh, as well. and what I I see there in Genesis 1 and two is you might the joke is you know God splits the atom, not literally, but in in the act of creation, um, uh, Eve is taken from his side uh, and what the word seems to designate to me, is a sense of sacredness, that human beings are sacred architecture. And that's part of the Imago Dei, that's part of um, them together sharing dominion over all of creation. Um, Genesis one doesn't speak of one having maybe, I mean, it uses explicit dominion authority language in Genesis one, which is interesting to me because that's, people often say, oh, that's a negative thing. And it's like, well, no, dominion in Genesis one can be used of God's dominion or God's reign or God's rule or God's kind of, dare I use a, control, uh, a word like sovereignty you know and so both male and female together are given this shared kind of sovereignty or this share representation as as the image of god and when eve in uh, genesis 2 is taken the interpretation is told for us uh it by by adam is this is this at last is bone of my bone flesh of my flesh you know she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man or taken from man or she is of man and that is i don't know how we read hierarchy in those verses. I think you, uh, what Adam expresses to me is, and I hate the phrase mutuality because I think it's a dumb word, but it's indicating both shared, uh, uh, shared uh, identity in the sense of human, you know he's she's not like the animals and he's probably at this at last he's emphatic at last this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh meaning the animals are not because i imagine he got lonely and looked at some of the animals like hmm god's we got to get it we got to take care of this real quick because he doesn't know what he's doing he's a you know he's, he's the dirt man he's the earthling and so when the phrase of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is meant to communicate correspondence gendered correspondence um but I don't see hierarchy in his declaration of, at last, this is, um, you might say, my sexual counterpart. You know, this at last is someone who is not like the animals, who is not like the grass. This is not like the trees. This is, this corresponds to me. You get that from Azar Konegdo, the, you know, the, the helper language, which she st- you would translate more woodenly as a strength as in front of him. Um, although you can get very poetic, but it basically just means she corresponds in strength to him, meaning there is a sort of, to use a uh, an, ana- uh, an analogy, I don't buy Eastern mysticism, but you almost think of a yin and yang. A difference that are kind of, sym- there's a symmetry there. Maybe that's a good word for it. There's a sy- symmetri- symmetry to that relationship. I mean, and that's...
0: About, avoid saying complimentary, right? So,
2: oh, no, yeah. <laughs> com- complementary is fine. I just think I know, just symmetry sorry, in terms of bone of bone, flesh of flesh, indicating that sort of thing. And the only asymmetry I see introduced is in the curses or at least in the fall narrative in Genesis 3, you know, where Satan is, you know, does all this stuff. And, you know, God puts enmity between male and female, um, which, of course, is uh, and you have the proto with that as well. You know, the smashing of the head of the serpent, you know, that's prefigured in Genesis 316, of course, as Paul speaks of in the Reve- you know, book of Revelation does as well, or at least maybe hints at it. And so you have already, I think, in Genesis, God's plan of redemption will come from the seed of woman, which, of course, is Eve in the New Testament and all that sort of stuff. And so I think whatever uh, gender based and I mean, we can look at men and women, Uh, men typically are much stronger. Men tend to be these things and all that sort of stuff. And you can see how in a world devoid of what God desires, that could go drastically, drastically wrong. And we see that going drastically, drastically wrong throughout literally the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, So that's that's kind of generally how I I see Genesis kind of working out from both the declaration of Salah of, you know, from his side uh, to his declaration of same same symmetry, differentness, corresponding complementarity in those verses to the dissimilarity that kind of basically breaks in the relationship. Because at the end, what does he do? Uh, Adam blames God for giving him Eve, which, of course, if you're God, you are incredibly offended (laughs) that you know, god, he basically is, he's like i i i'm a, you know this gets back to our theology of god god doesn't make bad things right god god doesn't create bad things so you're telling me that i messed up when i gave you literally bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh so it's one of those where uh that's kind of generally how i read genesis and there's a few more nuts and bolts we can get into but i think big picture that's kind of how i see it working out yeah, yeah, as it relates to that sort of language
0: I like the idea of like the just keeping it big picture primarily because I think this is going to be educational for people and what things to look into right so um, Brian
1: yeah I'm curious you know you mentioned like especially talking about like the church fathers is is some of this complementarian or maybe headship was in the water would you concede that at least maybe now in the last maybe 100 years that egalitarian is also in the water so i wonder if the same excuse could be made from the egalitarian side and say well it's kind of in the water now so is that is culture influencing this perspective and this drive to have this essentially equality of roles for men and women that really hadn't existed in the last 1900 years in the church
2: yes but with a caveat um, i could definitely see someone like if you grew up say episcopalian or something like that right it's in the water. But if you talk to most evangelical Christians, say Southern Baptist, there's going to be, we we know it's in the water in many Southern Baptist churches or the Southern Baptist denomination. And so for me, I'm willing to concede. And I just across the board, just trying to be intellectually honest that, yeah, of course things are in the water. It certainly wasn't in my water growing up. Um, but there is this sort of thing that kind of goes there, but I would push back, not necessarily against you, but on the idea of, of, um, what you see in culture now is not egalitarianism. The church did not invent the casting couch, for lack of a better word. Um, the church did not create these sorts of things. Now, it doesn't mean the church has always acted right when it comes to sex or, or all that sort of stuff. I mean, I just read stories. You read stories today about how the church has been horrific in its uh, treatment of women and men when it comes to sexual misconduct. Um, but culture, in my mind, doesn't teach egalitarianism. And it, I don't think it teaches complementarianism either. I think you, again, have the extremes of both matriarchy and patriarchy kind of running an antithesis to one another. Um, I think if you're just your average person growing up, matriarchy or patriarchy are kind of the standard kind of realms that you would exist in. And I'm not uh, generally speaking, of course, you do have uh, soft complementarian denominations like the EFCA, and you have soft or egalitarian denominations like the evangelical covenant church and so on and so forth that, you know, so in my mind, it's a claim that basically cuts both ways and that's why I don't make the claim.
0: So, um, uh, and real, real quick, I was so,
1: okay, there's a couple questions I I want to ask. Real quick. I have five questions. Real quick. I I have all the questions.
0: Um, so I guess real quick, uh since we're talking history i should stick there you mentioned something about greek or roman things poisoning the well i'd like mm-hmm. if you could could you uh flesh that out a little bit and then while we're talking about historical uh cases um it seems that throughout history the bishops or pastors or whatever you want to call them uh, were primarily male. Do you think this is because of that Greek or Roman influence, or do you think it, uh, the church actually believed that uh, biblically at the time? Can you just kind of flesh that out a little bit before we get to other biblical texts?
2: I mean, you could you could say it's both. Perhaps you know it is in the water, and it's also what they thought the Bible taught. And um, I mean, it's one of those things where the Bible is not written in a timeless cultural vacuum. It 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 is, and Mike Heiser, who loves the, making this point over and over, and it's just infuriating because everyone believes this. He just loves, he thinks it anyway. I, I've a love hate relationship with Mike Kaiser. but N.T. Wright, I'll say N.T. Wright does the same thing. It's this whole, you know, um, sorry. I had, I had two major thoughts collide and now there's a train wreck in my head. Uh, uh, well, cause it's like the Bible is, is written in a culture that is completely foreign to us. And hence see one Corinthians 11 and hair veils source, you know, all the sort of physiological stuff going on there, you know, and it's, it's a world that we aren't, don't have a ton of access to. And it's also a world that is a lost world to us in the sense of we don't live in that realm anymore. It's not to say it's bad or it's wrong, but um, my seminary professors hammered it into me. It's like, you can't just take the culture and the Bible and separate the two because the Bible is written with a specific culture in mind. Um, and so with Greco-Roman uh, materials, I do think when you have um, Gentiles or, or if you translate it as some people are going pagans, meaning non-Jews, you know, the, you know the, just kind of that phrase. When you have Gentiles coming into the church, they're coming to the church as Gentiles with the hope of sanctification, holiness. mean, that's why Paul is always fighting with the Gentiles about basically everything. He's fighting about the Jews, about like one or two things. He's fighting about Gentiles, about everything. Um, and so on the one hand, I do think the Greco-Roman culture being the dominant culture was Um, generally misogynistic. And I don't use that as like a shock word. I I use it in the technical sense of the word. They viewed women as inferior as subhuman. Um, Plutarch, Tatian, like like, all of them. Like what the joke is, you go to a prostitute for love, you go to your wife for children. That's kind of the mentality of it. Um, Women were for watching your house while you went out and did stuff and making sure everything was fine. And that's kind of how you had that sort of influence going. Now, Judaism, I would push back on the claim, not that y'all made it, but just the claim that Judaism was as misogynistic. Um, for example, no, there, are law, Gre- there, uh, there are Greco-Roman laws that tell women to be silent in certain places. There's no law in, in the Book of Moses that tells women to be silent, for example. There's just no law. There's no law in the Old Testament about you know wives submitting to their husbands. But you do find that all over the place in Greco-Roman and also in... Um, second temple jewish sources but not in the old testament which tells us that there and i don't like the hellenization thesis i think it's garbage and it's been debunked and it's it's like q it's just been thrown in the ash bin and should have never been even revived but it's this idea of you you can't deny that there's cross-pollination of culture throughout all these times even for jewish people uh who circumcision dietary laws were willing to just nope we're not going to engage we're going to be separatistic and all that sort of stuff we're not going to engage in all this um it's almost impossible to be not influenced by your culture um and that that can be a good or a bad thing um so when i see greco-roman sources incredibly misogynistic and i look at jewish sources um there is a an ocean of difference between the two in terms of the treatment of women the view of women the rights afforded to women um and all that sort of stuff and so i don't know if that at least in the is in the ballpark of answering your question but I mean, like if you know what Plutarch said about women, you know what probably 95% of all Greco-Roman men at the time thought about women. And Philo, and Philo is bad too, but Philo also has to deal with his, his, um, his love of Plato right. more than his uh, love of what evangelicals today call the historical grammatical method. Plato had no use for that.
0: I mean, I, like you I said, like the whole idea of Ju- Judaism being misogynistic actually drives me nuts, too, because uh, mm-hmm. Israel actually gave women rights uh, in mm-hmm. a time where that was that was unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely. Um, and uh, I actually read Plutarch today in preparation for this just to be like, yeah, what was the culture of that time what was a culture milieu of the time just kind of rebrush up on it. And mm-hmm. I was like, I forgot how horrible Plutarch is. Like it's, just, it's really disturbing when you read it.
2: Well, and it, and it brings up... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
0: Oh, no, you're good. Go ahead. You could go. Well, we
2: can and it, it brings up an interesting point because if, if we're going to make claims about history, right, and I'm all about it, like, we need to do that. The complementarian position is not the traditional position. The traditional position would be something closer to patriarchy because we see that in, in Plutarch. We see it in Philo. We see it in Tertullian. We see it in all... I don't, I don't think we see that in the Bible, but the culture around and past the Bible certainly um, would have been would have been classified as patriarchal, whereas most complementarians today reject that, or at least rejects or reject it as something that, you know, this isn't what scripture teaches. We're told to love our wives as Christ has loved the church. Um, women can do these things in church and so on and so forth. And so we've all, and the joke is, and this is why the patriarchalists are, the technically the patriarchalists aren't happy because they they see complementarian as capitulation to egalitarianism. And I think I saw that on Twitter recently. One of them said that. And so I'm looking at it going like, we all have, Basically viewed the world of the New Testament, not the New Testament itself, but the world around the New Testament, as well as the history, the history uh, behind or uh, post New Testament as deeply unreflective of the biblical truths found in the New Testament. And we've all basically shunned patriarchy, for lack of a better word, and matriarchy, which you also found in some cults, you know, women led cults in the ancient world as well. Not many of them, but there a few. So we've all kind of looked at assessed patriarchy biblically and been like, no. We we don't accept ter- how how Tertullian views women, for example. We don't accept that, you know. And it's not, and it's I'm, I don't think that's us getting around it, but it does tell us that our our what we bring to this debate is often, in my mind at least, and I I still struggle with this. What water am I drinking? That is, caused me to kind of go this route, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So at the end of the day, all I'm saying, when we make claims about history like that, we need to be incredibly careful with what we're bringing in because there's a whole ball of wax and kitten caboodle that we're bringing in when we make claims about history like that. And that applies to everyone. I'm not saying y'all don't do this. We all need to be aware of the kit and caboodle and the ball of wax. That's, Coming with it just because it's like, we, we don't accept this. Sorry, right. we don't accept that women are like this and so on and right. so forth. Go ahead.
0: There's historical baggage, right? And that's, mm-hmm. I take it more of a new perspective on Paul's pr- approach. I believe Paul oftentimes spoke as a new, te- as a first century uh, Pharisee, a lot of times mm-hmm. so converted to Judaism. So I think I converted mm-hmm. to Christianity. So I think that's um, uh, a- a- an important thing. Now, Brian, you have your thing up. To- were you going to ask something? Or- I just want to ask then
1: mm-hmm. when Paul tells Timothy he does not permit women to teach or exercise authority in the church. What do you think he's saying then from an egalitarian perspective?
2: I'm happy to answer that. Will, were you going to go somewhere? I don't want to lose...
0: Oh, no, I was actually going to go into those texts. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Okay, I I wasn't sure. We're like practically married, but we're not, you see. And so our brains do this thing. Sure. We're married in a very egalitarian way.
2: Sure. (laughs) In in egalitarian ways. I've seen the memes. (laughs) Sure. Uh,
0: We did not make those, and I I do not.
2: Sure. I no
0: affiliation (laughs) to those people. We don't condone them, but we laugh at them a lot. Oh,
2: of course. (laughs) Yeah, no, It's and 1 Timothy, I think, is... One of those passages uh, that is probably the most difficult to explain, generally, um, and I had I trouble explaining it as. Yeah.
0: Before, so I don't mean to interrupt you, but no, um, go for it. I think comp, comps and egals both have to explain that passage because it is—it's a, a. If you take it straightforwardly, it can sound pretty bad so Mm -hmm. i just wanted to make sure that we're fair to even our side on that that we're not trying to throw one side under the bus it is a difficult passage
2: well anyone who says it's clear is either hasn't read it in greek hasn't read scholarship or doesn't really care like and i was that guy too i quoted that and was like see that settles it and then as soon as i learned greek and opened my greek new testament
1: oh um
2: uh naughty words you know and all that sort of stuff (laughs) um and so Have what i what bleep that anyways just for yeah time. just not <laughs> not. Um, so what I, so just a few hermeneutical things, just get out of the way real quick. Um, some people don't think Paul wrote the pastorals. I think he did. Um, I'm like 70, 30 on that question. There are days where I'm like, mm, I don't know. Then most days I'm like, yeah, it sounds pretty Paul. So we'll leave aside the question of authorship. Some egalitarians basically, go, uh, Paul wrote everything except the pastoral. So who cares about what the Pastoral say? They're products of the second century, blah, who cares? And it's like, mm, no, no, that's that, that would, that doesn't satisfy me personally, even if I do think Paul wrote them. So just getting that off the table right now, um, I think the chief focus of the pastoral epistles is not to create a manual for church governance, because I don't think the church was, um, structured that way in the first century. Um, I I think in the new Testament, you have a singular vision of what constitutes the church, the body of Christ. And then you have many competing expressions of ecclesiology based on that image. And so, um, and hence, one of the reasons why people doubt the pastoral epistles authenticity, right? This looks more structured as opposed to, say, 1 Corinthians 12, right? It's like, oh, boy, you know, this is a completely different vision. Um, I think they're compatible if you allow for Paul to be like, yo, in this context right over here, it's fine to have more structure. And here, lead, let the spirit lead you. Just don't, you know, do all the other stuff that y'all have been doing in the first few chapters, like sex with your stepmother and and going out with prostitutes and stuff. But I digress. Um, <laughs> I, I think so. The purpose is to combat heresy, and Paul tells us what that heresy, or at least kind of gives us some hints of what it is. I think it's in verse 3. He was on his way to Macedonia. He's going to remain in Ephesus, um, instructing, uh, I'll just, oh, here it is, uh, Instruct certain people not to teach different teachings. I'm reading from the NRSVVU, not because I like it, but because it's what just came up, Um, and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith. And, but the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Some people have deviated from this and turned to meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. It's like, okay, so that is not as much evidence or material as we would like, but it tells us Paul is basically throwing down with people. And that, so the point is not, oh, I'm going to create a systematic theology, but the point is um, Paul's fighting with someone or a group of people. And we see this in Galatians, we see it all over the place. Um, here, you might say some people think it's proto-gnosticism, some people think it's syncretism uh, of some sort. Um, at the end of the day, I think that you just don't have enough evidence to feel very strongly about what the actual heresy is. But in any sense, uh, he goes on to talk about um, Christology in verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15. Um I'll start in verse, I'll just go with verse 12 because context. I'm grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. And so in some sense, you have Paul not identifying with the, um, the heresy folk, but at least going like, God saved even me, right? So there is this sort of kind of judgment of them, this condemnation polemically of them, but also a, there's a restorative aspect, hopefully, you know, and Paul uses himself as an example because he just goes on to say, um, but I received or obtained mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the love and faith that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. So not only do you have a nice little bit of preexistent Christology and incarnational theology, you have um, the mission of Christ being exemplified in his self-giving death to save sinners. So already you have salvation imagery and language. You have um, the reason Christ came into the world and so on and so forth. And when you have that kind of going with the issue of heresies and let's genealogies, different teachings or heterodox teachings, we're beginning to get kind of a picture of that. Um, and so uh, then he gives this charge to Timothy. You know, he has this wonderful, you know, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful. I charge This charge I commit to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan, so that I may be taught not to blaspheme. So, uh, we're not going to get into once saved, always saved. Um, I'm sure we agree on that. But it does tell us, okay, when Paul names a name, it's either an incredibly generous thing, because that's what you do, or an incredibly bad thing. If Paul named his opponents in Galatians, like, you know, um, Nick and Will and Brian really suck at this whole thing, we'd be like, oh, shazbot, we are so screwed. You know, it's like, that's what you do. That is, if Paul calls you out by name, it's either the nicest thing you can do or you just feel like, you know, God took a dump on your forehead. Like, that's kind of how Paul acts, right? <laughs> And so the fact that he names these two guys and they have been turned over to Satan, which, you know, that kind of lexeme and that word when applied elsewhere in the Pauline corpus or that concept, I should say, looks like the incestuous man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was turned over to Satan. Right. Basically, he was expulsed from the church. He was kicked out. Right. And uh, here you have a pedagogical function so that they may taught or learn, depending on how you render the verb, not to blaspheme. Okay, so there's a pedagogical function to being turned over to Satan, i.e. kicked out of the church or i.e. disfellowshipped. Okay, so that tells us about maybe the names of the people that were propagating this heresy, because who else would you name but the people in charge? It's an inference, but I think that's not an unreasonable interpretation. And so then Paul, having laid out the problem and having essentially um, dealt with the issue or at least the head of the issue, the main issue, the people in the church who are now no longer there. He has to correct the problem. He has to actually solve this. Right? You can't just kick the people out and be off. That was that settles it because we all know in ministry and in life, um, you can get rid of a pastor, whether he or she is great or bad, but you still have to deal with the fallout from that. You still have to deal with all that. And so here is Paul's way, I think, of dealing with the fallout. And so I'm sorry this is taking so long because, um, I'd rather just go through the passage as best I can without just being like, oh, well, this verse little here says this and stuff like that. And so skipping over to chapter two, um, depending on my internet. And so then he goes into all this wonderful stuff about supplications, prayers, quiet, peaceful life. There's one God and one mediator between God and humankind, the human Christ Jesus. And so again, wonderful universal atonement language, wonderful material there. Uh, We're not gonna cover any of that unless we want to. Um, But then he gets to verse eight. I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, that the women should dress themselves in moderate clothing with reverence and self-control, not with their hair braided or with gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works. That is proper for women who profess reverence for God. So, okay. so you have the issue there being addressed. Men uh, don't act like brutes, for lack of a better word. This is not how the church is supposed to function. Um, And they're also causing disturbance there because if you know anger and all this sort of stuff, it's like, okay, that doesn't tell us again as much about the problem as we'd like, but there's clearly some sort of conflict. And I think you actually see, I I think this is kind of its own way. This was actually fought. Paul had this fight in 1 Corinthians 11, to be honest. I think it's a very similar sort of situation where you have men and women dealing with new freedom in Christ to prophesy and to do all these things, but you have the issue of, Hair, you have the issue of what does this now mean in a culture um, that's oddly very similar to ours when it comes to sex, you know, Corinth being what it is, you know, ancient Corinth. And so Paul then goes, okay, so we're going to address these generically because he doesn't name any names. And so it's like, okay, this is just a generic thing pointing down. And he tells them, let a woman or wife, depending how you render it, learn in silence with full submission. So, like, okay, that already is an interesting thing because what is she being told to do? Well, she's being told to learn. And that, verb is used throughout the new testament and broader jewish literature to denote something that it sounds like to learn to take in knowledge to learn about um, in this instance uh, we're not told what she's supposed to learn but we are i think it's fair to say Um, you're, you're being told to learn so as to not be involved in these endless genealogies, these heresies, and also what seems to be this flaunting of wealth, hair, gold, jewelry, the opulence of the culture and stuff like that. And so they're being told that is not appropriate conduct in the house of God, or at least in the house church, probably a better way of saying it, because it's not like they had a, an air conditioned building they were meeting in. And so that is Paul's command in the passage. Let the women learn, or it's, you know, it's imperative, the women must learn, meaning like Jesus, you got to learn. And there's a a rabbinic, or I think it's, I'm going to get the reference wrong, but I think it's in Sirach, where it basically says, before you teach, you got to learn. That's kind of a basic idiom. Like, don't spat off, don't be stupid, read your book, read your Bible, and then get back to me, is kind of the idea. And so then you get to verse 12, which is incredibly complex, just in terms of syntax, and in terms of word studies. Um, And we can delve into this as much as you want, but um, I I understand the passage to be saying something different from the NRSV and the ESV. Um, I think it's saying something along the lines, and this is, um, I'll just go with it. It's, uh, I'm not permitting or I do not permit a woman to, and then there's uh, to teach, and then the question of how to translate this infinitive, to do something. Uh, Some translations have to assume authority over, to exercise its authority, to have authority, um, the issue with that, and I, I published an article on this a while back, was it is very difficult within the New Testament era, you know, 100 years before, 100 years after, to find a positive use of this word in an, in an ecclesial setting. Meaning this, you know, this is not something a pastor does. They don't exercise this sort of verb. This verb is not applied to them. If it's applied to God in post-biblical or post-New Testament times, it's usually what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. So you don't want you don't want this verb to happen to you. Um, the closest parallel I found to the use of this verb is the noun, which Philo uses in his discussion of Cain and Abel. And it, the whole point of his conversation with Cain and Abel is um, not to basically the whole thing is you've become a murderer of your brother, having slain him. And that word for murder is the same lexeme word group. The, the noun form of what we find here, of the women to do something. And so that tells me that this word, when Paul could have used other words to denote positive authority or other sorts of things like exutiazo or uh, other, other words, he just doesn't use them. So this word probably refers to something like I use, people have used um, language of say dominates or domineer, which is found ironically in the, in the King James Bible. It's a domineer. Um, I would say something like to control. Because uh, I think there is a sense of when you act in this way, using this word group toward another person, it is usually overpowering someone, whether it's uh, doing that to someone's slave, you know, overpowering someone's slave to get them to do what you want, or in the case of Cain and Abel and Philo's story or Philo's reading, uh, killing him, overpowering him by killing him. And so that tells us that there is a very hostile relationship between the men and women in this congregation, which is promulgated through the heresy. It's promulgated through the endless myths and genealogies. And then the question becomes, okay, if that is Paul's assessment of the problem, you know, that they're acting, these men and women are acting in ways that are contrary to the house of God, then what is the solution to that? And then, of course, he jumps to creation. He says, Um, for Adam was formed first then Eve and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor or fell into transgression some people read this as affirming the creative order or the created order I read this as referring to the created sequence it is a biblical theological compression of Genesis 2 or probably 3 let's say Genesis 3 3 in a nutshell Um, he affirms that Eve was actually deceived and he equates that with the women who were deceived you've basically fallen into deception like Eve was and we know he's doing that because in 1 Corinthians eleven three 3, he says the whole church has fallen into deception and uses Eve as the type or a typological example of deception. And so the whole point here is not to affirm some sort of created order, because I don't see order in Genesis as being taught. But basically, you could say Paul is, I don't want to say shaming, but Paul's going like, don't be like Eve. Eve sinned willingly. Adam was, or or, rather Eve was deceived as you have been deceived through Hymenaeus and Alexander with these myths, endless genealogies. And there's also maybe some temple stuff going on. Um, I I think a lot of the Artemis stuff in the background is overblown. I I don't think it tells us as much about cults as we would like. Um, But what you do have are unruly, uneducated in terms of Christianity, women coming to the church with all sorts of money and acting like they would in their own setting. They're the people with all the money and power because that's how patronage in the ancient world worked. And so then the issue goes to Paul basically cites that to give an example of what happened when a woman was deceived. It ended in the human race or it ended with the human race falling into sin and the fall. But instead of going the Second Temple Jewish route of blaming Eve for the fall, he goes and says, ah, but. And that's where verse 15, I think, is so much more interesting is you have yet she, which is in the singular, will be saved through childbearing, or depending on how you render it, I would probably render it as the childbirth, because it's a noun, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And then if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, uh, you have a very interesting argument that I think can be made. You have that the saying is trustworthy and true, right? The faithful sayings. That is applied in 1 Timothy 1. 1.5 to the Incarnation. The statement is faithful and true that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so wherever this idiom, this pithy, you know, pistis logios, you know, pistis logos, you know, this faithful word appears it's connected Christologically. It happens all throughout the pastoral epistles. And so I think rather than, and this of course is the issue of chapter divisions and verse divisions and headings and all that sort of, as we all know, there's none of these in the original text, but if, if, and my wife is arguing this in her dissertation and other people have argued this as well. If she'll be saved through the childbirth is connected to that faithful saying in the next clause, then that is the incarnation. That is Jesus Christ coming into the world. And that's how some of the early church read it. That's how Irenaeus very strongly read it. He read it typologically. Um, And so you have Paul basically affirming the Genesis account that yes, Eve was deceived and brought sin into the world well, Adam too, and also he blames Adam in Romans 5 through one man's sin and so on and so forth. But in this instance, he goes, Eve did this, but yet she will be saved through the childbearing that is, or the childbirth that is Christ Jesus. And what is, who is Christ Jesus? If we go a few verses up, one mediator between God and humankind, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So you have, incarnation you have atonement theology you have paul's essentially his ending of the heretical arguments because he's already cut the head off gotten rid of the, the agitators and now he goes you are to be seen in terms of christ not in terms of all the baggage and the nonsense that you bring with you from your your cults your your garbage you know like your 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 stuff you know you are to be seen in light of the incarnation and you are to learn who jesus christ is And so in some sense, I do think the text does affirm a universal eternal prohibition. Nobody, women included, should act with dominance in the church ever. So in that sense, yes, I do think Paul has a universal prohibition because he's effectively barring people from unethical activity in the church. And I think Paul does the same thing with men as well in other places. And so that's kind of, and again, that's a very broad Thirty thousand foot view. There's many things to tinker with that I, I skipped, and you could hear me going into, and I stopped myself, which is very difficult to do. So I deserve good job, Nick. Um, but that's that's generally reading the passage as much as a whole with the pieces. You know, the, some of the exegetical tidbits that you need to kind of have hashed out, hashed out um, of that passage specifically. So let the roasting commence.
1: All right, Nick. I had a clarifying question on what you said because um, you're talking about when you said the the negative connotation where the Greek word kind of brought along maybe some real negative connotations of maybe overbearing control. Were you saying that was just the exercise authority part is, is the teaching part absent from that? Or was you saying both of those were descriptive of
2: super negative? So that is hugely debated and a really good question. Um, so you've got two ways of thinking of this. Um, and this has been, people are, it's one of those. We only parse out these these verses when it's truly on the line. Some people like entire monographs and articles dedicated to that sort of question. The best arguments that I've seen is you have this infant the you'll say, the first verb to teach, and then you have the well. I'll just say to control. I think that's. I, I. It's one of those things. Authority may not even be the root meaning of the word. It probably. I mean. So it's one of those of like how do you even gloss it because. It's not murder because they're not killing each other, but it's clearly to dominate, sounds a little weird. But so it's like controlling, a, you know, to control someone. So let's say to teach and to control. There's two ways of arguing it it's to control, to teach and to control are separate activities. They're, they're, so it's two, Paul is prohibiting two activities to teach on one hand and to act in a certain way on another. The problem is, and the issue I have with that is just, is multifold because when you have this conjunction that is tied to these sorts of constructs, you know, to do this or to do that, it's almost, and Philip Payne has made this argument and uh, Craig Blomberg, who's in, who is a complementarian, has followed him. And a lot of people have gone this way as well. I think, the, I, I think what you have are probably two ideas or rather two concepts conveying a singular idea. Kind of like you would say something like hit and run, eat and run. You're not conveying, you know, um two separate ideas you're conveying a singular act or 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 something like that or maybe an example would be the concert was loud and 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 uh raucous it's like okay it wasn't loud and it was raucous it's like no it's conveying a singular idea and while that issue is debated the two separate ideas or the singular idea expressed two, by two concepts uh it's you see it in night and day you know those sorts of ideas as well um I think it's best taken from what the grammatical evidence suggests as a singular event can using two separate concepts to convey a singular event like hit and run. So to teach and to control our scene, you might say as two sides of the same coin They are. Exp- it is a singular, uh, I don't know what this is. What is this? <laughs> uh, under 30, please ID, please, you know, so, but to control, to teach, it's conveying a singular thing. And if that's the case, um, Paul is prohibiting a singular activity, which I think makes sense, given the endless genealogies, the myths. Um, he's basically, if you want to gloss it or paraphrase it, and I'm hesitant to do it just because I don't like paraphr- paraphrasing things. But in order to get kind of what I think Paul is saying is um, don't teach in a controlling, domineering manner. You would kind of try and put those two things together. Um, and so I think from the grammatical point um, just in terms of pure syntax, I think that's the better argument. But you're right; it is a debated point. Um, that's actually a really
0: good question. I didn't even think about asking that be, well. because
2: you because what you've got the issue of that's uh, <laughs> what happens when uh, the verb to teach people. The argument will be made: um, Paul is Paul prohibiting two positive things or two negative things? You know, because you know, for the people that choose the the two you know the two separate ideas, right? The this and this, right? Um, they say, well, to teach is always positive, and that means that um the we'll say authentic the verb right the verb authentic must have a positive positive meaning the problem is that assumes uh linguistic um what's the specific term it assumes that a verb is always used in the exact same way in every single instance where in the pastorals it isn't you have a compound verb to teach a contrary doctrine it's a you know it's a it's a compound word where that Each word is included in that, to teach false doctrine, to teach contrary or heterodox doctrine in verse four, in chapter one, verse four. And so um, I think to teach is neutral. It doesn't tell you the verb. The verb itself is not positive or negative there because there's just contextual. You have to make that call. Um, It also begs the question of why would Paul? Paul doesn't prohibit good things if they're good for the church, you're prohibiting negative things. So to teach automatically, I think, has a negative connotation in context. Not that the word itself means that. Um, the only difference when you take authentio is given the rarity of the word used only once in the New Testament. It's not like to teach. It's used all over the place. Um, when you have that word group used, it is either, it is usually, and it's not used a ton, you know, so it's not like we've got a wealth of data to go with, Um, Overwhelmingly, it's used in negative uh, and, and, and has a very negative connotation. And it usually denotes something like murder or corrosion or kind of an overbearing. You might say uh, act the tyrant. Over, It has an authoritarian kind of vibe to it. And so when Paul is prohibiting them to teach and act in this way, he's not saying um, two separate things. He's communicating a singular activity via two different verbs. And so, but what you asked is a really good question because it is debated. And I think egalitarians could argue, you know, take the, the two separate things, right? I, I've heard arguments from that. Craig Keener, I think was favorable to it, even though I don't know where he goes with that. Kevin Giles is favorable to it. Um, but I, I think the argument by Payne and Blomberg and others is probably, I wouldn't say decisive because there's always new evidence that pops up, you know, so you got to remain humble. But I think the best evidence um, favors the singular prohibition not two separate prohibitions if that makes sense
0: it does um now to kind of continue on um because uh yeah you definitely don't like summaries i forgot about that about with nick uh, hey, the guy does not speak in uh, in, in like just quick, silly, like synopsis, which He's is saying good. saying you're long-winded. Because we like Yeah, I'm, I'm
2: actually, very long-winded, yeah. <laughs> but
0: actually, well, I prefer, actually yeah. prefer that when I'm asking I a enjoyed it. When I ask a scholarly question, I want, like, yeah. sometimes I'll ask a scholarly question, they give me, like, a summary, and I'm like,
2: well, no, I'm asking you to, like, dig into yeah, that, man. Get in <laughs> the weeds, yeah. Oh, sorry, well, it's like, because summaries don't, anyway, I, I won't, yeah, I'll keep it concise. Summaries suck. Yes,
0: there we go. Oh, he was, he was able to give a summary of a summary. Um, and so, alliteration, too. <laughs> um so now all right let's move on from that i think did we flesh that out Did we discuss that enough to your contentedness
1: i mean i could talk for four hours on this so
0: yeah i know i I suddenly i'll let you ask a question should have been a series (laughs) with nick quint um because uh he's done his homework i like it um now then uh when it comes to because i i I hear brought up a lot and i actually don't think it's the strongest uh argument to use but I thought I'd bring it up here. It's the idea of like, uh, so he, he who wants to be a bishop, let him be a husband of one wife. So the whole mm-hmm. one wife lingo. lingo. Um, yeah. Of course, we also see that the same thing with the deacons and I already know that the Greek word. So I would just like you to kind of lead into that a little bit.
2: Sure. Um, there's also the issue of masculine pronouns. If we want to joke about pronouns, now's the time. But uh, 1 Timothy 3, <laughs> there's not a lot of, if I remember correctly, it's either there's no masculine pronouns or there's very few. And I want to be intellectually honest with that and say, I honestly off the top of my head. I don't remember. Um, But all the he's you see in there, he must be, he must be, he must be technically most, if not all of those are added by English translations to make sense of the passage. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. The only issue is the one woman, man, you know, if you render it woodenly, Um, the interesting thing is, I think this is telling is that Tom, and I'm, Going off memory right now. I think it's Thomas Schreiner, who's one of the major complementarian spokespersons. Brilliant on this, but he's wrong. But he's brilliant. You're allowed to be wrong and brilliant. I tell myself because hopefully I'm usually just wrong. Um, <laughs> it, but he basically concedes, yeah. This this passage doesn't rule out basically. It's a it's a ban on polygamy is basically the idea. Um, you must be married. Well, if you are to be, I should I should qualify that. If you are married, you should be uh, have one wife. Which is, of course, a standard in you know Jewish thought. You know, it's, you know if you're going to be married, you have to have one wife. Not you're not flinging around with people. Or you're not banging the help. To be crude about it, because that's what that's what men did. Slaves were there partly for that. We we know that. If we if you've seen anything on you know anything in Rome on Roman uh, well actually in Rome, the TV show Rome by HBO, great show. Prepare for R-rated woe, But that's what slaves were used for. And so Paul rules that out there. He rules out polygyny. Um, one of the jokes was, well, could Paul have ruled out? women having uh, multiple husbands. I'm like, you mean the thing that has never existed in Judaism? Like, or, or in Greco-Roman culture, like ever? Like, no. I mean, Paul, I think would have words about it, but I think Paul would just be like, blah, blah, what? <laughs> You're the <laughs> woman with seven husbands, what? Which is why th- there's some sad, well, well, the joke is, you know, that's when the 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 men come up, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and go, how many uh, husbands does she have? And he's just kind of like, like, this is stupid. Like, you know, this is a dumb question, you know? Um, so, yeah, i say I think deacons and overseers and I hate it's one of those where I don't like calling it overseer or bishop. I, I think it's imprecise. You'd say someone like has oversight, probably something like that. But even that's not a, as much of a title as we make it out to be, given the New, church, the new Testament church was less formal than we are. Um, but yeah, I think it just from what I've seen in Josephus and other texts, it just refers to uh, monogamous uh, monogamy. Basically, if you're married, you have one wife. Sorry, you don't have ten wives. You're not screwing the help. You're not doing all this nasty stuff. Like, and Paul rules out a lot of that in one Thessalonians four. Ironically enough, control your member, which is slang for keep your thing. Take you know, you know, take you know, no lust, no naughtiness. You know, to keep the it men in
0: your pants.
2: Basically, and so yeah, I take that passage as referring explicitly to that. Um, we see that in Josephus and other texts as well. Um, it was not. It, that's an argument that I, when I was complimentary, I'm like, really, that's the argument. And I went and read. I'm like, or is it crudum I can't remember who makes that argument. I was like, really, because. Josephus, and hmm, hmm, you know, kind of thing. So it, it, that was an argument that never clicked for me either. I was like, eh, if you want to make the argument, you can. I just eh. most complimentarians I know don't make the argument anymore because they're like, yeah, it basically just refers to monogamy, right? Okay. Which again, guess- the issue hermeneutically comes up. Not to interrupt you because I'm long winded. Um, is I was gonna
0: if, interrupt him
2: anyways. if if we take that woodenly, and I'm not talking literally, I'm talking woodenly, then you've got the issue of Jesus or Paul could not be an elder in your church. Timothy couldn't either because Timothy technically was—it's never said that he's married—and so it's one of those where it's like, okay, we can view this as a principle, but not as a hard and fast rule. Because I mean, if my wife passed away, or let's say uh, she was abusive—which she isn't—if she was abusive and we got divorced, I would now be barred from ministry, you know. And I know people, you know, who have gone through that sort of thing where no fault of their own—the wife initiated it or the husband initiated it—and they were just sucks to be you and same with single people as well uh, how do you you know how do you s- apply that to um uh, gay men and women who are committed to orthodoxy in the church committed to the traditional understanding of sex and want to serve in the church and have a calling to serve can they do they have to get married in order to serve well no because of what scripture seems to teach on that so there it's one of those where I view that passage as giving a principle which I don't think is wrong because I think it's true but um, a principle versus a hard and fast rule. Well, and Paul himself. Oh, okay, I'll shut up. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Okay, no, <laughs> I, I'd be inclined to agree with that because I mean he even says there's that same kind of language when it comes to like the deacon, mm-hmm. and we see the Greek word for deacon even being used to describe people like Phoebe. So yep. um, I, I, I'm like, well, if you take that that staunchly, um, I think your your argument's a little weak there. Uh, well, you know it, it
2: gets even it gets even worse <laughs> because phoebe is the only person who's named as the deacon of a church which means only women can be deacons if we take that logic and that argument like woodenly only women can be deacons of churches because she's the only person in the new testament who's named as deacon of the church in cancrea or uh, ephesus or something it's like well if we're going to be literalistic about this you know we have to bite the bullet on that but i i don't think that's what the text says i think men can be deacons too
0: and I just like to quickly plug. Brian and I were just on the Bible breakdown recently talking about elders and deacons and all those things. So if you want a deeper dive on what on that discussion, you can go check that out there. It
2: was a uh, good discussion. I enjoyed it.
0: Oh, wow. yeah, that's right. You were in the chat. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I, was harass- I was harassing y'all in the chat. <laughs> that's what you tend to do.
0: Um, so I know you as is that, that annoying feminist that screeches in my comment section.
2: Exactly. I, I took out my blue highlights just for this interview. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> to be fair, I think we made almost the same argument
1: Nick did as far as, you know, it's not that you can't. You have to be married and have children in order
0: to be an elder. Right. Bishop exactly. everyone. I'd it seems that. like such an absurd, weird argument to make there. So mm-hmm. um, now, Brian, you have other things I feel like we yes. should right We should try to land the plane here soon. Um, I would like to go for another hour. I know you would, <laughs> um, but we could always have Nick back. We can have him. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he's he's he likes us so far. Um, mm-hmm. Brian, you, ha- you have a bunch of things pulled up. So,
1: yeah. So back to some of the With the teaching part with with first Timothy Mm -hmm. and so we see and the the not talking or not not exercising authority or whatever we have an example from 1 Corinthians on them on Paul saying women keep silent and then we have an example from Titus in chapter 2 Paul describing the role of women and who they are to teach which is essentially the younger women how to how to take care Mm -hmm. of their husbands and children So how do you, does that add some credibility to the, maybe the basic understanding or the the, uh, general understanding of 1 Timothy that he's saying women shouldn't teach or exercise authority over men? And therefore, see First Corinthians and see Titus, no. for examples.
0: And for clarification, you're saying basically that there's these roles that seem to be given specifically to women. Exactly. Versus mm-hmm. men. Like, there's talks about those specifically. Yeah, so. maybe
1: back up. I, th- I think we see pretty clearly that there's roles from women in the church. It's not that they're excluded from roles. I mm-hmm. think what I what I see is I see we see them excluded specifically from a couple roles. And otherwise, we see them. They are teaching. They are exercising some authority they are doing things on behalf of the church in the name of christ but we Mm -hmm. don't see it we see i think i see it in in still this gendered role perspective this hierarchy that i would say still goes back to genesis 2 but we don't have to discuss that part (laughs) so what's your specific question so we see titus describing women we see paul to titus describing women's role in the church teaching other women and we see in first corinthians and i you probably will talk about this with speaking in tongues and stuff as women keeping silent in the church How does so credence yeah. to the first timothy basic reading
2: um i would take uh, let's look at titus real quick i think paul gives a a very specific rationale for what he says um and I think part of it is apologetic, and I think part of it is missiological. Um, I think what Paul says in Titus 2 specifically is, you know, self-controlled, submissive to their husbands, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and we're not quite we're not going into the marriage bit because we'd be here too long. Um, but yeah. Paul tells us the rationale for it is so that the word of God may not be discredited. And so in a sense, you have, I would argue, a cultural argument here, an apologetic argument, where Paul is like, okay, look, there are certain structures in the ancient household the greco-roman household you know because this is in ephesus rome very much has control of this area so there is a cultural understanding of what a wife is supposed to be and so paul kind of echoes that a bit and goes yeah but he doesn't go because of certain key features or doesn't give really a rationale about biology or, or, or role or anything like that. Rather, he says, so that the word of God may not be discredited. And I think you see the same sort of logic in Romans 13, for example. The idea of, yes, submit to the governing authorities. Yes, yes, yes. And the rationale is, one, because they wield the, hopefully they don't wield the sword in vain. But two, how are you meant to survive in a world when you're basically teaching everything that goes contrary to the perceived dogmas of the day? An example would be that uh, for Paul to preach the abolition of slavery would literally destroy the church one because then you have no your household crumbles because there's no one to do the work literally if you set the slaves free the entire economy of the roman empire just begins to shudder and crack because it's a slave-based economy and so it's one of those like okay i think paul understands one in the church we have a very specific way of viewing things galatians 3 philemon 1 corinthians 7 21 we have The liberation of slaves from sin and bondage in fact you know christ became a slave in philippians 2 right and so the whole argument i think paul is making is not submission because of preconceived ideas but submission because that the culture will be won over specifically so that the go ahead
0: oh no so essentially the argument would be that paul is contextualizing within the greek and roman empire a little bit like hey in order for us to be able to not be thrown in killed and murdered and we, we have to work within the system essentially Um what? which I wouldn't say is completely wrong in a lot of areas <laughs> with Paul like when he's like tells the slave to return to the master mm-hmm. um, things like that I so. mean he does get stoned
1: and then goes back in so I don't know yeah. I don't know if I fully buy the well let's well, get along to, to get along.
2: well it, wor- along it works for right? Paul because Paul has no obligations to a house or a child or a wife, you know, as far as we can tell, at least, you know, he has no household. He's an itinerant missionary. So he can afford to kind of take one on the chin, so to speak. But for a a fledgling group of 20 people in a home, if you're, if, and it's one of those um, third world folks uh, have explained this to me, and that's where I got it from was, if you are a social disease, and that's what Larry Hurtado and other people have basically shown is that the early Christians were viewed as a disease. They the the Greco-Romans did not like you. And if they didn't do trade with you, then there was no option for patronage. Your economic uh, prosperity declined. Um, Like it was really bad to be outside of the realm of the Greco-Roman imperial cult. And so it's one of those where I think Paul is basically free to take it on the chin, but if he's got a group of 20 people and they're invested their livelihood in this new Jesus movement, um, Paul basically is like, here's how you survive in Caesar's world while living under Caesar's reign, while trying to use the kingdom to make it into the reality that God desires. And that's not me saying culture is irrelevant. I'm saying, no, the culture here is so relevant that Paul basically has to go, in order to survive in Caesar's household, there are certain rules you have to live by. Of course, these rules are transitory because Christ will come and destroy all sovereignty and powers and stuff like that. But in the meantime, here's how you survive in Caesar's household. And that's specifically, I think the logic of what he's getting at with Titus two, um, I don't think that's the logic of 1 Corinthians 14. That's, and we can jump to that in a sec if you're good with that. But that's how I think tight, the ethics of Titus are working. It's not an affirmation of culture, but it's here's how you survive because, it, and we know this because if if you um, the early Christians were mocked because everyone thought they were uh, engaged in incest and uh, cannibalism because of the body and blood of Christ, and also because they called each other brothers and sisters. Yeah, you know, that, that was the common way of referring to each other, adolphoi. Um, And so reading uh, critics of Christianity tells us a lot about how they were viewed. Um, they're this, they're that, they're atheists, they're these sorts of things. And so in order to survive in that environment, you have to, it's like Christians today. It's like we don't go around flaunting Christ in the way that, you know, we, we would normally do if we were in a Christian context, right? We talk differently in culture than we do in church. That's not to say it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, there's certain ways of, en- it's a thing. And it's a, there's, a, there's a, there's certain ways of engaging in culture that can be apologetically and missionally appropriate. And that's, I think, at the heart of a lot of what Paul says when it comes to decorum there are certain ways that you can act and certain ways you can't act now and that's i think the logical one corinthians 11 you know the hair and stuff like that and all the you know stuff that has going on there but basically it's here's how you survive in caesar's household and that includes submission that includes um doing these things within the confines that unfortunately caesar has set because as 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 we all know paul lives in the antithesis between the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the working out of God's kingdom which is very slowly happening, although these days, um, I don't know about you, I see signs of revelation all over the place, to be silly about it. So that's generally my approach to Titus. And I think Paul's ethic as a whole, I think Paul has bedrock ethics. And then he goes, all right, well, we need to be contextual about this. And so So, the trick is, is being responsible and not going like, oh, well, what Paul said about, you know, this and that is, you know, that's all contextual. Well, no, everything is contextual, but not everything is, Easily dismissed like that, if that makes sense. So
1: was Paul being then irresponsible, having Phoebe being a deacon, essentially the harbor of Corinth?
2: No, um, because that- in uh, because uh, Phoebe was a wealthy woman.
1: Okay, so that was okay because of her
2: power. Yeah, yeah. yes, okay. because of her. Her she was Paul's patron. She was a woman of wealth. She um was the deacon of a church a lot, and we have uh, records of women uh being synagogue leaders and stuff like that as well, archeological evidence and stuff like that. Um, it tells us about the early, and there, not to get too into the weeds, but there, there was an argument made recently that I think was, has not been disproven to my liking yet. And I think it stands, is that 90 to 95% of all early Christians were impoverished. They were, there were very few wealthy Christians in the Roman empire, very few. And if you, were, if you were wealthy and became a Christian, you weren't wealthy much longer, was kind of the idea. Which is why probably there's so much language about dealing with the poor and lonely amongst you. Yep, because you know how bad it is when you got, you have there's poor and then there's real poor. You know, the poor in Jerusalem, the collection and stuff like that. I mean, that's why Peter, or I'm sorry, Peter, Paul ties it Christologically. Christ who was rich became poor for your sakes. That has a whole different shade of meaning in light of that. And so I think Phoebe as a woman who is a woman of means, a woman who can travel from Cancria to Rome. um, This is a woman who was able to get patronage to Paul. Um, this is a woman of means. And in that context, it was perfectly appropriate for a woman with means to have some sort of, um, status in the Roman world. Because at the end of the day, the Romans admired wealth. They admired your household. They admired these sorts of things. And if you were poor, sorry, you're not, you're not as high up on the totem pole, but somehow, um, best we know, Phoebe was independently wealthy, or at least comparatively to probably what's going on in in the pastoral epistles, but also probably in Corinth as well.
1: So Paulsha told Titus that on the island of Crete, you should find a rich woman in every town, so that they can have a <laughs> they can ha- have her represent them better and have her travel well, around. I mean,
2: that's why he tells them to greet. That's why he tells them to greet Phoebe and to reimburse her. Basically, is kind of the language because she probably took it on the chin, and who knows how long she's she's got when it comes to wealth and and the status. And it tells us that how how wonderful and powerful she must have been, and how much suffering she probably took for that. You know like she's basically burning money to to br- possibly bring the epistle to the romans that's debated i don't know but in any sense um she's burning money and it's one of those things where you don't have a 401 c3 or a uh or a nest egg in in the ancient world so that tells her about tells us about her character i think which is uh quite profound i think
0: so um did you want to talk about that any further? No, you can continue. Okay, because we okay. need to do a part two. I'm I'm excited about this. Yeah, I can already tell we're going to need to do this again, um, which would actually be cool. We could have like a an Egal playlist with Nick Quint. It'd be it'd be fun. Be fun. Um, we'll just do it once a year. <laughs>
2: I'll, so I'll see y'all in 2023. Okay, cool. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. You know that way we keep these really close to release. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, so we kind of I feel like those are some of your major passages, right? Like that you shall not teach. Now, I do not give her authority. Okay, well, what does that mean? Um, And then also, of course, uh, like uh, first Timothy, chapter two, things like that. Um, I think those are some of the major areas. Um, So I guess the next one uh, would be simply one thing I'm curious about, um, because it's my understanding, all the Jewish literature I have read, that it has always been hierarchical, um, which uh, apparently, I, I guess, might be disagreed with on that that's fine um but one of the the ones that i remember i asked you when you were on spartan theology and i think you did you didn't quite understand what i was getting at which is fine because mm-hmm. that's in the comment section um, oh, okay. and i was at work and so i was like oh, i'll just talk to dick i was
2: also that was nolan being born and us being locked down so i remember i remember not being in a good place for most of that lockdown so i'm, I'm sure i said something that was very very helpful um, you, honestly,
0: you just said you literally just said like I don't know what he's getting at there. Move on, and, and so you're just kind of like I don't know. So whatever, and I'm like that's fine because I totally do the same thing in live stream. Maybe that'll happen
1: again right now.
0: Um yeah. maybe. <laughs>
2: I mean, I reserve the right to say it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So um, Isaiah three twelve uh, it says my people infants are their oppressors and women rule over them oh my people your guides mislead you and you mm-hmm. have swallowed up the course of your paths and it is my understanding that basically Isaiah three the entire point is that the of uh, that the general order of things has been flipped upside down which is why children are your oppressors which that should not be you should be ruling over your children and it says that women rule over you like hey this is backwards to the hierarchy would you say that's just because that's post fall uh, which is I guess you know that's your prerogative. I just, I'm just curious at how you would think of that when it seems like it's discussing like a reversal of the standard order of how things should be. Or what's your just thoughts on something like that? I know no, you're a New Testament theologian, so if you're just like, bro, I barely even looked into that. I have no clue. I'm cool with that too.
2: <laughs> I I have no problem with um with polemics, especially wartime or uh, or oracle or prophetic um. Uh, judgment language. I I think if someone were, I mean, as an egalitarian, if someone said, your wife rules the house, I'd be incredibly embarrassed by that, to be honest with you. Uh, Because I I view that as a shared thing. Um, And she doesn't, of course, and bears repeating. But if someone said that to, uh, if God is saying that through the Oracle or the prophet, um, I think the point is to offend. Like that's the whole point. I don't think it's teaching us about roles or anything. I think it's more, you're trying to shame people like, and that's, it's like, you know, as an egalitarian, I can, I, I've joked with friends like yesterday, like you throw like a girl. And of course he threw it back at my face and he hit me right here, but I don't, it's one of those where I kind of look and I go, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't you go for the jugular in an Oracle prophetic wartime judgment context? Like, it's one of those where I don't think he's saying all women everywhere, because then I I view Deborah, I view Holda, I view all these other women as, and they didn't seem to have a problem with with Deborah at all. And so it's one of those, I'm like, I don't think Deborah would be offended at that either, because we read Deborah's song in Judges 5, she's talking about the enemies being annihilated in front of her presence. And, you know, how God and Yahweh, God and Yahweh, Yahweh has come down and just obliterated, you know, his enemies and stuff like that. And so it's one of those where it's like, I don't think a Deborah or Holda would be at all offended by that. I just... Go ahead. Oh,
0: no, no, that's, that's perfectly fine. Cause like, so yeah, you're saying like generally speaking wartime language is okay to be hyperbolic then.
2: Yeah. I mean, it it is explicitly hyperbolic. Like it's, it's going on and on about all this stuff. And um, I don't think a, and I use this phrase very specifically. I don't think a patriarchal context, and I don't mean patriarchy, but a patriarchal context uh, mitigates human beings talking in certain ways. Like in, I I've, argued with people, uh, on this and this was, and I say this with a little bit of shame, you know, so you know, I'm, I'm not human, but I argued with guys and I said you know, on this issue and other issues where I said stuff that went after their masculinity to make a point, but, uh, I could tell it really bothered them. And that's the point of this sort of language. It's designed to basically, I can't do it, but to, they'll do the Christian thingy to your enemies. <laughs> it's, 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 it's heart lifting up the skirt to show the British your that's what they do. And so for me, I I don't have a problem with that. Not because I think it teaches patriarchy or anything, but why wouldn't you, that's how you go for the jugular in wartime language and judgment language. I mean, there's stuff about, uh, and all throughout Isaiah about uh, Isaiah, sorry, my, you can hear my Australian and British influences coming in Isaiah. Um, You can hear that sort of language all over the place and no one's offended by it because we understand what the intent is. It's not saying women are all these sorts of things because Deborah and all these other things, but it's, How offended a patriarchal context, like their enemies assume, how offended they would be by that. Like, it's one thing to joke. I can say someone throws like a girl and I don't mean I'm not being sexist, you know, but the whole point is to show how sexist they are and how they take that response. Right. That's kind of how oracles work. It's designed to provoke the enemy or judgment language as well. So that's kind of general. Fly or I was going to say squirrel like Doug from up as it was a fly right there. Anyway, my train of thought is completely gone. I'll toss it back to you.
0: No, so, I mean, I guess for me, it's like if well, if it's if that's going after the, their masculinity, because there's a lot of language like that so mm-hmm. after the masculinity, it would seem like uh, whenever that's of say they, something against men, um, that that would be going against. Yeah, because that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, which is why it's taunting to you. But I mean, I guess we could get into that later at another point. But uh, what, I guess one of the Deborah, I think is something we should talk about. Yes. Uh, before we close up shop. Maybe let's end on Deborah and then maybe revisit. Does that sound like a plan? Sure. Sure. Cool. So, uh, Deborah is a fascinating conversation in this. Like, it really is. So, I've talked to some Jewish friends and they said, um, and the quote was that Deborah was a shame upon Israel, which I was like, whoa, that's some strong language. And then there's other people who are like, yeah, cha- they champion Deborah. Um, so I just, it, like, it's so funny how there's these extremes of view. One thing that I do find interesting is that in Hebrews 11, Barak is mentioned um, and not Deborah. So I was, uh, Brian, you seem like you have it pulled up there. Is there something you specifically wanted to ask? Well, and I
1: think Brad made this point in the comment section not too long ago that Deborah was the only judge that isn't explicitly called by God in the text, which I thought was an interesting exclusion. Oh, I forgot about that. Um, that so I don't, that. have you, have you noticed that and any thoughts on, on Deborah being the one that isn't called or isn't raised up by God explicitly like the other judges? Because all the other
0: judges, for context, all the other judges says called by God, called by God, called by God. And Deborah, it's just is like Deborah, a judge, a prophetess. And right. you're like, okay. And then also why is Barack the one that's mentioned? in Hebrews 11, which and the reason why I actually have it, it, it weirds me out that Brock has mentioned is because I look at Brock as the guy who's just kind of like hanging out. Like I don't really look at mm-hmm. him as a strong leader in that context either. So I just find it like you to see what I'm saying. Like it's a very strange, there's a lot of weird things going on there. And I, I'd be curious your take. Please answer those
1: seven questions we just gave you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All of
2: them. Um, well, judges two sixteen does say, and the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them. So unless we create a special category for Deborah, I'm like, the Lord raises up judges, and that's what it says. And that's only a few chapters before. And so, it's one of those where why does uh, Judges four not say the Lord specifically raised her up? I don't know, but he did say it earlier. So, unless of course we could ask the negatives, like, well, why didn't why did God do? Why didn't God say this about her? Why didn't God say this about her? I mean, the fact that she's the last good judge, at least technically in the narrative, is interesting to me. But at the end of the day, um, the text never says. I mean, and. Like I went and read it as a complementarian. There's nothing in the text that indicates that she was a shame upon Israel. Like there's just nothing in the text. Barack doesn't seem ashamed by her. And Ron Pierce has a really interesting article on that. Um, uh, it just it seems in my mind. I'm reading this. I'm like this reads stupidly straightforward. Like just as a narrative. I'm like there's nothing here about her being this or that. It's just Deborah goes and does stuff, and it's just okay. This seems perfectly normal to me. And given a patriarchal context, not mindset but context that is odd um but and there's also some interesting stuff about um well i don't want to get into reception history uh because there's some really interesting stuff uh there there's an etymological argument about what her name means um I'll, i'll send you if you're interested uh ron pierce who is my professor at bioli's uh Professor of Old Testament, I'll send you his article on Deborah specifically, because I remember reading it and it was, just like a little throwaway thing about what Deborah's name actually means. And it was like, oh, I I
0: would actually like that. Yeah, send that to us.
2: Yeah, yeah, we'll do. Um, But in any sense, um, because there's a few exegetical points I wanted to make, but I I don't think we have time because each one would be too much to unpack. Um, In any sense, uh, I, I look at Deborah like this. All right, look, there is, if we set aside our baggage that we all come to this text, and we don't overinterpret her because there's you know I've seen people overinterpret her quite a bit. Um, we have a judge and a prophet. That's a you might call a dual. I don't want to use the word title because I think that's too formal, but y'all know what I mean. You have a dual kind of call a dual calling. You no know, role role in, in the specific sense of what it actually means. Like uh, Tom Cruise's role was as Maverick. It's like so that's what it means. You know, you fulfill a certain uh, activity or function. Um, the fact that she's called a judge and a prophet together denotes, um, kind of a, and I, I don't like the term spiritual authority, but I don't know what else to call it off the top of my head. The fact that the prophets of the old Testament speak forth the very words of God, both in blessing and curse and in judgment is interesting. Um, the fact that, uh, she is nested under a tree is also very interesting. The Palm of Deborah, that's a, a public site, um, uh, it's also an interesting that the verb is used, she was already judging. So she'd been a judge for a while in Hebrew. The verb denotes kind of she's been doing this for a while. Um, there's really no, the only cryptic part, if I remember correctly, um, the only cryptic part is Barak's response and her response as well. And I remember reading it in Hebrew, being like, what the heck is being said? And that's not me as an egalitarian. That's me just being like, what on earth is being said here? Because it's very cryptic language. Um, And so it's one of those where you could render. I think the NLT renders it something like, I will go, but only if you go with me is what he says. So Yeah, she's her safety blanket. (laughs) Yeah safety blanket and her woman means could mean woman of fire, which I'm like, uh, that's a pretty good safety blanket. Who knows what she did. Um, and so, um, all. she didn't have a peg yeah. though. So no, nope, we have to wait on that. Um, but in terms of that, there's in my mind, unless I'm coming at this, I don't see any specific instance why she's a, sh- why she should be seen as a shame upon Israel. Um, unless we assume that Israel is patriarchal by nature, I don't think we can make that assumption. Um, same with women prophets, you know, Huldah. And we see that in the New Testament as well, uh, in Luke, Acts, and, and Paul. Um, as for Hebrews, I, I think, and this is going to sound silly, it's because Barak had great faith. She didn't need faith in the sense of she knew what was going to happen. She had uh, the word of the Lord. I mean, you need faith in the sense of, you know, going forward and doing it. But Barak needed great faith because they were it was against all odds. And his faith is that he listened to her. And God secured the victory. Ironically enough, through the hand of the woman who drove a tent peg into a dude's head. And so that's why while I think he um, that's while he like, was sleeping. That's
1: savage. Yeah, that's <laughs>
2: <Yep>. absolutely. <laughs> savage. Oh, just based as all hell. <laughs> yep.
0: This
1: uh,
2: is
0: all hell. Yep.
2: poor guy. So, so, I, I think well, you can concede that there's a a pattern of you might say male leadership, but a pattern is always bro- is often broken. So you could say, yeah. I don't have a problem with there being lots of men doing things. I just see, well, Deborah does stuff and isn't vilified or, you know, anything like that and go, let's just make space for Deborah too. What
1: well, I always thought it was interesting, the way I read the text is, you know, Deborah reminds Barack what the Lord commanded him to do. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I'm scared. And she's like, she's like, well, because of essentially a little bit of crisis of faith, lack of faith that you want me to go, then as a consequence, the victory is going to be of a woman, which seems like a condemnation against him and his lack of following God's original commandment directly to him and having to be reminded by Deborah. That's at least how I read uh, the first several verses there in chapter four. Thoughts on that?
2: Um, I don't know if he's, I, I think what you have here, and this is one of the great ironies of the of the Old Testament that I wish I knew more of, is, um, reversalism, you know, the, the expectations, right? So for example, uh, David is not, uh, his older brothers are not chosen, but yet he is right. The youngest, you know, and same with Jacob and Esau and all these others, God constantly seems content to be very ironic with how things get done in God's world. And so I think the joke is, um, Barack could have been the one to put a tent peg. I don't know why the King would be in his tent. That's kind of a little weird, but I don't, it's one of those where I, I look at it as, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I think the glory or however you frame that is centered on, you could have been the one to hang his head from the lamppost. And yet, because of your reticence, um, God, and this is going to sound silly to, or anathema to some folks, God changed what he was going to do and said, okay, fine. I'll just go through this way. And it won't be what you're expecting. And I don't mean changed in the, providential sense, but I think God was like, well, I got multiple things I could do here. Let's do this. And Brock kind of is slow and he goes, okay, fine. I'll just accomplish it this way because, you know, Molinism or other things, Yep, you know, oh, that thing passed. I'll just go do this thing over here. And, you know, goes, all right, well, I'm going to give it to the based chick who beats the living tar out of this king. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, you're expecting, I mean, in, in literature, you're expecting, you know, oh, a romance scene here and come into my tent. I'll give you some milk. Why don't you lay down and then smash, you know, kind of thing. It's like. It's constantly playing up the expectations and then subverting them and so i think judges there's a lot of irony in judges and a lot of uh i hope to have a few old, old testament guys and gals on my channel to talk more about judges specifically
0: first game of thrones uh subverting the audience's expectations yeah for 5, hmm. years ago. Then she busts out yep. like
2: <laughs> oh gosh he is so gone <laughs> yeah. nailed it okay i'm done hey, there we go
1: <laughs> Uh, <laughs> luthered it that's first person uh, uh, to meme that please send it to us because uh, i want to see that
0: <laughs> yes so well this has been really interesting i oh, think yeah. um i i've really enjoyed this conversation one of the things i wanted to show people uh in our conversation was the fact that this is how there's a ways you can have conversations when you don't mm-hmm. hold to the other person's position and mm-hmm. you and the thing is is that you ask them questions and you learn stuff like you brought up certain things i was like oh I'm gonna look into that. Yeah. You know, and I it's like I'm gonna research that and I wanna see where I stand on that. Like that does it seem convincing to me. And because a lot of times nowadays people are like so scared of dialogue that they disagree with, which is why you have the heresy hunters everywhere. Yep. Um <laughs> like they are willing to just kill everybody who disagrees with them. And it's like, well, how about you talk to the person you disagree with who's actually studied this out? Mm -hmm. And maybe you learn something or maybe if you still disagree, you have a better educated approach on how to disagree Mm -hmm. with them and the areas of contention. Mm -hmm. Because I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, um, like for example, actually, this is a, this is a fun example because it's, it's a thing that keeps recurring with us on Twitter that we keep getting tagged in, um, and I'm not—I don't want to drag you into my position. So uh, my Nick position, agrees with us, FYI. No, uh, yeah, Nick <laughs> completely agrees with everything. Um, <laughs> um, no, and distance. so, Nick, so I am very, so I believe that people who have even a different view of the Trinity can be saved. Not everyone agrees with me on that, but just for me believing that somebody can be saved and not hold to the Trinity means that that i've been told that i attack the trinity and i should be disavowed and i'm like i never huh. attacked the Trinity. <laughs> what like I, I actually defend the trinity i have a four-part series on this channel that i want to redo because i think i could do better um you know what i mean like so is this is mm-hmm. funny because like yeah. well don't just because you disagree with me being an include more of an inclusivist not a not the same thing as um what's the universalist, word?
2: universalist or pluralist yes, yeah.
0: yes. Um, just because, but understand my position before you just attack me. But same thing mm-hmm. with this, like this. And of course this is not nearly as a, a vital of a position in my view, um, yeah. uh, as something like the deity of Christ, obviously that's a pretty big deal. Um, yep. but this particular, uh, conversation we're having, it's like, well, look, this is how you, you can have that conversation. Do you disagree with somebody? Yes. Sit down and talk to them, ask them questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so i thought this was a beneficial and because i consider you a good a great christian person i find oh, you a you. good someone to uh who exemplifies um a good christian walk who is studious i'm like this is how you do it so i i don't know, i just wanted to say that that i appreciate you um coming on and having a discussion and just letting us know what your thoughts are and you didn't really pull back you didn't make any apologies about your positions and i think that's good well, I think let's be clear to this this is a church splitting topic people do get upset
1: mm-hmm. about yep. this idea specifically and if you can't have this kind of dialogue where you can joke around have fun ask interesting questions get interesting response and actually process what you're hearing instead go claws out you need to work on that you are not where you need to be practice mm-hmm. maybe practice yeah. on the internet maybe practice with your dog I don't I don't know but you need to <laughs> you need to learn how to actually interact with people because we see it in Acts, right? We see mm-hmm. them having disagreements. Hashtag no small
0: disagreements, Acts 5. Yeah.
1: Now, we see also, like, there's some apostolic sats with Paul in Galatians too, and you can, you can also get pretty savage when you know someone's doing something wrong. But mm-hmm. I think when we have these disagreements, these are not church-splitting. They shouldn't be church-splitting topics. We should be able to discuss them. We should be able to take in cultural ideas from the past and currently and actually— Mesh them together and actually try to make sense of what we're understanding without getting offended get some thick skin enjoy some camaraderie with a brother who has some different different ideas for you and yeah. learn
0: and I learned could, today and he could be wrong or you could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I'm wrong on stuff. I mean, I have no doubt I'm wrong on stuff. I've discovered I'm wrong on so many things in the last three years It's insane. <laughs> um, and it's it's one of those real oddly addicting things that I keep studying, and I'm like, "Ooh, I'm wrong!" And then I get excited about being wrong, and I study it mm-hmm. even further, and I, I have a weird obsession. You won't um, realize you're wrong unless <laughs> you expose yourself to right. the other side of it and make sure that you actually are correct. And to circle yeah. back to this issue, our friend Jordan Ferrier with not a tame sheep, uh, it his wife, like I said, she's in ministry. She's and I'm trying to find a Sunday. Where I have not tied down to what I do at my church, and I want to go visit them because they've come visited us so many times at my church. I'm like, I want to go visit mm-hmm. you at yours. And even though I'm a soft comp and they're egal at church and comp in the home, it's like I'm not going to sit there and be like, "Nah, I don't fellowship with you." <laughs> <laughs> Will's is in the audience. Wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah.
0: It's silly. Um,
2: get yeah, in the I, kitchen. That's how. Yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. get in the. Get, I've had, I, I actually had a guy do that like he, he jokingly like he knew the minister she was great and he was sitting there and goes she goes up there and goes this is my first Sunday he goes the and I goes get in the kitchen and of course everyone just erupts in laughter because she that was just really okay, funny make funny. me a
0: sandwich um <laughs> yeah so and that's actually why it's like i say i'm soft comp because i was raised hardcore independent fundamental baptist oh that's
1: right i forgot yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. they're, they're like, we're complementarian. And what they really mean is a patriarchal. Yep. And so what I've noticed is a lot of people who have left the IFB, uh, they go complementarian is, is wrong. They throw they say that is completely wrong. I'm like, Well, hold up. They said they were complementarian, but they actually mm-hmm. aren't. Okay. They've yep. given the comps a bad name. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not helpful. Um, right. So anyway, the point is with all this, like for me, like I was raised as so a soft comp and I'm like, no, women can do things in the church. Like women can do things. Women can even, um, you know, s- give the gospel presentations. They can speak, okay? Like, so, I mean, and I guess that's why I think you and I, are it's like our, our, our differences are probably very small um, uh, as far as, but honestly, I just really appreciate this conversation, Nick. Yeah. I had a good time.
2: Oh, likewise. No, it's it's helpful. It's it's one of those where it's it's weird because it's not a first tier orthodoxy issue unless you bring the Trinity, in which case I'm like, oh, we need to be really careful here, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, it's really
1: good talking. <laughs> yeah,
2: um, but it is a first tier issue when it comes to orthopraxy, how the church functions, and I, I it's one of those where it's like, could I attend a complementarian church? Um, any church where my wife can serve in any capacity? Unfortunately, I just I couldn't because that's just a conviction of mine what i attend of course i attend all sorts of churches that are complementary and i have no problem with that um i mean and i would happily serve in a church that was divided on the issue or had convictions on both sides but i'd go in there going look this is my you're not going to get someone who you know um is willing to agree to disagree although i am willing to agree to disagree but it's like i want to have this conversation with you like if you if you're right i want to know but if you're wrong you, you it is on you to change your mind you know, um, and it, and and what I mean by change your mind is not after a conversation like this go and change your mind. I think that's absolute hogwash. It took me a year to change my mind.
0: Please, you and it change took your
2: positions it, like it's like that flippantly. But you see people doing it, and so I want to caution people if 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 y'all have made questions, you know, had questions, and people are like, oh boy, let's go. I'm an egalitarian. I want to go more over there. It's like great, but don't just abandon your position because it it tickles you like honey in the ear. Take time to read it, like the idea of studying something for three months, I'm like, that's not enough time or four months. Like that's not enough time. Like take a year or so to read and reflect. And like you said, go to a church where women preach, like just go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go and see if I don't go to like a, a, an insane liberal woke church as Oh, women, what are you? You know, it's like, no, go to an actual gospel based <laughs> egalitarian church and hear the word of the Lord from a woman, you know? Um, but take, and I think a lot of people are looking for excuses to change their mind based on culture, based on what they want to be true. And I see that all, all, all over the place. And I go, that, that's just BS. Like, just stop. Take the time to humbly and slowly walk through this topic. And you can be an egalitarian and not know what to do with 1 Timothy 2. You can be a complementarian and not know what to do with Galatians 3.28. Um, it's one of those where take, I think a lot of people are just unwilling to take the time to really delve into this issue, like most issues. And I think the instant you start to do that, you notice that hopefully the the truths come out and you're refined and the edges are knocked off a little bit and at best you go, you know what? I treated that person really poorly. I, I went back and did it. Like I apologized to friends for how I came across in certain conversations. Like, I'm like, that was just unchristlike, and I have no excuse, I'm sorry. And uh, I think we need to be willing to do that more. And that's just a good lesson I think for everyone myself included of course
0: oh absolutely i mean i've been there done that got the t-shirt <laughs> for the same thing and like there'd be there was a period of time if you asked me like six years ago whether or not i would consider <laughs> uh legal someone of orthodoxy and i'd be like what no that's just ridiculous and then the more i've been around it, the actual theological world and being a part of that in the apologetics and theological sphere I've been like, hey, you know, that was really stupid. <laughs> that was a really dumb position to have. Oh, so, thank, um, thank
2: the Lord for the Lord's mercy.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, I mean, you're right. The, this take Some of these things that I have studied out for a long time. Like I've studied, like the atonement was something I studied for uh, the past three years before I changed my mm-hmm. position on it openly yep. on the program where I just straight up said it. Um, so yeah anyway this is good and I've really enjoyed it and I'd love to have you back on to discuss this and New Testament theology and eschatology and a lot of other technologies uh, <laughs> um yeah yeah man we uh, uh, I really appreciate your friendship guys yeah. if you haven't already Nick Quint is the coolest dude in, on earth don't tell David Paulman he'd get jealous <laughs> um, just go check out uh, check out New Testament Theologist um, on YouTube uh, you've been doing that for how long now
2: Oh gosh, it feels like forever. It's probably only been like, I only did it seriously in the last year.
0: Right, and I will tell you this from experience, your first thousand subs are the hardest. After that, oh, things yeah. just kind of click through and it's fine. So go subscribe to him. One of the biggest things that we, one of the biggest things that helped us at the church split was people like Braxton Hunter and other larger platforms coming on and giving, a, giving awareness to who we are um, mm-hmm. and actually endorsing us. Cause he was like, yeah, they're not absolutely crazy. And then, um, so one of the things is that we always wanted to do is that even though Braxton Hunter had 10,000, like more subs than us came on, talked to us like normal and promoted us, we wanted to do the same to other people who get started because, well, you gotta get started somewhere. So yeah. it does us no good to have these guests on who take the time out of their life to have these great conversations with us. If you don't go subscribe to them and listen to them, um, the whole point of this isn't just for my benefit, but also for everyone else's, including Nick's. So um, go check them
2: out.